friends. Welcome to the Rosé Hour podcast. Today, we have two amazing, dope, fresh guests. First, Corey Marshall, my brother from another mother, who's done some amazing campaigns and things. And Carly Pildes, a great Jewish advocate. Everybody drink Rosé. Rosé. So we sip Rosé. We gonna sip Rosé. Hey there, friends, and welcome to the Rose Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Renee J. Johnson, and I'm here with Bartender Ben. Yes, how y'all doing? What's going on? Well, Bartender Ben, we need to just get right into it because. It's been a week, and I need some rosé. So what are you serving us up this week? So this week we have Bebe Sparkling Prosecco. It's straight from Italy. It's a lively strawberry-covered sparkling blend straight from the vineyards in Vini Tironi. I don't even know where that is, but I would love to go there one day and and squash some grapes or something. Yes, sounds like a field trip. (laughs) Well, speaking of squashing grapes, have a great interview today with Corey where we squashed a couple grapes when we first met. Uh-oh. I know, right? Well, let's get into the first interview with Corey Marshall. Pew, 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 pew. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Rosé Hour podcast. And I'm your host, Renee J. Johnson. And today I'm here with an amazing, smart, intelligent, political <laughs> Devo, I, I don't know, I just made that up. Uh, because you like you are like dope and like a super dope dude. Um, brother from another mother, literally, because everyone thought you were my brother when you first moved here to DC. People, studio audience, give it up for Corey Marshall. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yay, pew, 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 pew. I, as you hear, I'm a little raspy from the weekend. Uh, you flew out here as well with the homies uh, for, for the podcast and a few other things. But I thank did. you so much yeah. for coming on today. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Really happy to be here. Yes. So, Corey, <laughs> we go way, 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 way back. We do. Like, when we first met y'all. <laughs> We were not gonna be friends. Oh, it was a tough time. It was a different. It was the worst of times. It was not the best of times. But it was the times. I can honey. remember like it was yesterday. Man, so like, okay, so Corey invited me to a party here in DC. I did. But I lived in Baltimore, uh-huh. and I was like, okay, I'll be there at such and such time. I come, I'm there. I'm waiting on corners. It's cold outside. And what does Corey do, child? What you do, Corey? I was a little tardy, but... Uh, a little tardy! <laughs> some of my fraternity brothers have made me late to come in to see your day. A little late. It wasn't my fault. Yo, when, and then when I finally saw him, I was like, I don't like this person. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, this young lady is very interesting, but a lot of Ooh. people... A lot of people at uh, SIUC Carbondale had told me that I should connect with yes. Renee when I was visiting Washington, D.C. Yes. She was doing fantastic stuff. Yes. And we've been so. best friends ever since. <laughs> we have. We're more like siblings and family at we this really point. We really are. Yeah. We really are. Because my parents know you and your parents know me. Exactly, it's like yeah. They literally act <laughs> they like do. we're all family. They do. They so, do. Corey. we are. I, I'm just so thankful you're here. Tell yeah. people about you. Like, who are you? Yeah, my name is uh, Corey Marshall. Um, I actually lived in the nation's capital where this show is actually recorded, 
where the Rose Hour is, was, was crafted and recorded and uh, started and moved to Chicago um, two and a half years ago to be um, engaged in my community locally um, and to, to be an example of the types of, uh, to be an example for people for the type of world I'd like to see. So yeah, yeah I'd like to serve people to give back. Yes, he is a server, people, and we don't mean a McDonald's server. He is serving the masses yep. and doing great work <laughs> in the community. So what are you working on now? Right now I'm working uh, for, actually I'm a, 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 a worker. I work for government. I work for the chief executive uh, office, the chief executive officer. Because you know how it is, people. (laughs) Of uh, Illinois. And uh, with that also, I I co-founded a nonprofit, which has done a tremendous amount of work in the uh, Mm -hmm. Chicagoland uh, community. Chai gives back. We have a really large toy drive. It's the second largest toy drive in the Midwest in Illinois. We do a a program called uh, Teach to Give, where we give back. Um, classroom support and classroom items to uh, Chicago public school teachers. And we have um, activations where we support folks who are suffering from homelessness. And particularly, we just, we, our moniker is that we specialize in uh, acts of random, random acts of kindness. So that's what we do. Wow. That's amazing. Like a lot of things that you guys are doing and like co-founding and 501c3, right? 501c3, yeah. How, how did you come up with the idea or connect with people to even like execute that. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, uh, I, it, shy gives back really started with the toy drive that took place and that a toy drive initiative that I wanted to do when I first moved back to Chicago. Mm-hmm. But, um, the toy drive really came from when you and me were doing toy drives <laughs> here yeah. in, in DC and we had, we were rolling up and they kept mm. growing and growing. And then all of a sudden, you know, I got ready to move to work, uh, to take a job in Chicago. And so at the point where I moved, I still wanted to do a toy drive. So I reached out to some other folks who went to SIUC and people right. who were involved in, you know, just the community in Chicago and they organically came um, together and we had a toy drive and we were doing a lot of media tours on TV and radio. Yeah. And people kept saying, what is your name? Like, what is your name? What's the name of the... We were a singing group without a name. Ah, uh, <laughs> so we had five to, temptations. <laughs> that's what we no were. <laughs> so we had to create a name in order to... Um, to keep the vehicle moving forward. And it kind of happened organically. We didn't really set out to create a nonprofit organization. And if you could have told me three years ago that today we would have one that was thriving, I wouldn't have thought that that would be the case. Wow. Because that wasn't a part of my plans. That's crazy. So basically you took what you've done here in the district. Mm-hmm. Um, it's innate in you to yeah. give back always. Yeah. Hence, yeah. Shy Gives Back. Shy Gives Back. And yeah. created something. Yeah. And and like the name itself is pretty dope. Yeah. So what does the name actually like mean? Who came up with it? And like, how we, does that come to be? So um, we came up with the name as a group. You know, I believe teamwork makes the dream work. And I, I you know, Shy... People in Chicago and Illinois and all around the country recognize Chicago. They call it the shy for, for short or slang, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, the young people would say the shy. They wouldn't just say Chicago. Right. And uh, not Chirac, people. Not Chirac. We, we don't like we that. We do not name. accept Chirac. You want to say the, the, the short version called, say, shy gives back. Yeah. You know, and so we wanted to um, come together to do something to benefit and uplift all of Chicago and people who are in need and who are living on the edge and just need some extra support. So we just attached shy to giving back because that's what we do on a regular basis. So yeah. sorry we came up with the name. That's amazing. Yeah, so there's nonprofit. It's in Chicago. It it's is. doing a lot of work. What What is like 
the reach you guys are having because, you know, Chicago has mm -hmm. a lot of issues yeah. and you can't impact all of them, mm -hmm. right? And like making that transition from D.C. to Chicago, mm -hmm. those situations in the community are quite different. They are. Really look at they the are. communities. So like, what do you guys focus on and like, what communities are you really trying to make sure you have that reach to? We we specifically are interested in supporting low-income communities, you know, mm -hmm. people who are um, SNAP recipients, people who are on what people uh, we, what we call food stamps, or in Illinois, it's called a link card. We, we like to support young children who probably grew up in single-parent households and just people who are living at or below the poverty threshold who just need extra support. And a lot of single parents out there are working and still a part of what we know in this country to be the working poor. So we try to, you know, usher in to CB CPS, Chicago Public Schools, to help teachers to be an example um, to young students. And you, you asked about our reach. We've we've been so blessed to have some incredible partnerships over the last two years. We had a we have a partnership with Bleacher Report, the Chicago Bulls, and just Google, Pepsi, Pepsi Cola, and just a lot of brands who've wrapped their um, wrap their hands and uh, heart around the work that we're doing because it's really just uh, something we created to just give back to people who really need the support. So Yeah, and I noticed one of the events you did was for teachers. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about like what that event was and why you guys decided to go with teachers to support yeah. them? Yeah, the University of Chicago did a poll. Um, the NERC Center did a poll which um, found that I think it was like above 80% of folks who were polled out of a, a pool, I think, of 800 people um, that teachers are underpaid and undervalued. Now, we know and believe that narrative because we know teachers all across America, not just in Chicago, <laughs> aren't receiving the types of funding that they need. And, you know, a lot of our districts are cash strapped currently and probably for the long term as the country continues to face budget crisis and budget woes, not just in Chicago again, but yeah. all over. So we created a program because a lot of teachers we know take their own um, capital, the their paychecks, to buy classroom projects and to their their families literally have to take their money out of their wallets to purchase classroom projects. So what we did, we created a program called Teach to Give because our teachers give back by teaching. So they teach to give. That's their way of giving back yeah. to the future. And children are, in fact, our future. So we... Every summer, select 50 to 100 teachers. Wow. Yeah, and we give them classroom supplies up to one hundred, up to $500. And so part of what we do is $250 of the, of, the, of the classroom projects are paper, pencils, maybe some extra book bags and items that some of the low-income students like might need. tissue, tissue for your nose yeah. and all that, yeah. Lysol hand sanitizers. And then we give them a link to Amazon where they can purchase, they can tell us their wish list item, and then we actually go and purchase it for them. Wow. Up to $250, yeah, so. Wow. I, yeah. I, I mean, hey, to you teachers out there in Chicago, um, go ahead and tell Shagas <laughs> back that you yeah. need to get back. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you can give back to these kids. <laughs> that is amazing. That, <laughs> Thank and, you. And you guys created this. We like, did. this was we not did. already a thing that was happening. We did. No, you made this happen. No, it wasn't. Wow. Yeah. You know, we've heard of a lot of book. We did. We, you know, we were familiar with folks that do book bag drives. We just wanted to do something different for a population of folks who are often forgotten about. We had a 62-year-old teacher who had been teaching at CPS for over 29 years, and she said she had never been recognized for her wow. efforts and was, was tearing up as she talked to us about the things that, that how we supported her and recognized her. And we didn't we didn't create the program to be recognized, but to recognize and just that was so powerful just to even hear that story. And it'll stick with me forever. Yeah, and to be 60 some years old, still working and teaching, yeah. you know, like 
Retirement is not the same anymore. Yeah, and a lot of people not. have it's to. And, and for a teacher, that goes to show you teachers are not paid what right. they should right. you know, be paid. So right. that's very, 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 very encouraging to hear yeah. some of the things that people are doing. Um, and it sounds like if people wanted to help, they can donate or yeah. contact Shy Gives Back. Absolutely. And be a part of that. We are on Instagram at Shy Gives Back, C-H-I-G-I-V-E-S-B-A-C-K. Also online, www.shygivesback. And also on Twitter at The Shy Gives Back. Please look us up. And if you're in Chicago, join us to volunteer. We are looking for all the volunteers we can get. Uh, this year, we plan to launch a mentoring program that will uh, teach um, critical life skills to young boys and girls because oftentimes yes. we forget about young girls when we think about mentorship and they are mo- one of the most important segments of our population. So I'm here for all of this. <laughs> um, also, this toy drive you guys are mm-hmm. doing. So you guys have been on, and I've seen it, WGN, mm-hmm. and everybody has Windy WGN. It mm-hmm. is a na- nationwide mm-hmm. syndicated yep. uh, channel. So yep. like, you guys were on there talking about the holiday party you guys do. Um, and like, how did that come to be? Like, how did you guys start that? Um, I know you were speaking about how mm-hmm. we were doing mm-hmm. parties here in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get help kids on tour drives. But like, how did you transition from doing that in D.C. Yeah. to in Chicago? And then also like, who are these recipients? Like what kids get these gifts? Yeah. So, yeah, you talk about some of the notoriety we've got. Now start there and then go to how we started and the kids we served. I know that was a loaded question. No, it was was fantastic. You know, we've been on WGN. We've been on Windy City Live. We've been on, like, featuring the Chicago Tribune and so many media um, outlets. And, you know, this is funny. This is my first podcast ever Ah, in my life, and I've done a lot of media type stuff. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's it's an honor to be on the show. And I think this is probably one of the most important media appearances I've ever made in my life because I believe believe in the host, (laughs) you, Renee Johnson. And I believe in the vision and the things you're, the types of programming you're bringing to people. And you're giving us exactly what we need to hear. It's entertaining and engaging. I look forward to coming on. Uh, when you have millions of followers and fans in the hey. future. But <laughs> I know you're here to do a job, so let me answer that question. <laughs> back to back But to thank you for that plug. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. I listen to your style. That's pretty dope. <laughs> you know, so we we um started really small. Uh, well, I guess if we can say it was small. Our first toy drive in Chicago was in uh, three years ago. Mm-hmm. At the Godfrey Hotel. Shout out to Sandy Robinson. Sandy's the director of sales and yes. marketing at the Godfrey Hotel. And our other co-founders, John Bodie, who's a marketing uh, director. With and from Sh- North Chicago. Yes, he is. From, from, from around where you're from. Yes. And so we had our first toy drive and we um, just, you know, just kept building it and building it and building it. And just recently this year, we partnered with the Chicago Police Department so Whoa. that yeah, some of the captains and precincts and sergeants and commanders would pick students that they work with to receive these toys. And every student that we work with, we hope um, people have been honest with us. They come from low-income families, people Mm -hmm. who have, we had not been providing these toys to them. They otherwise would not have a Christmas, you know, or a holiday, you know, I want to be PC. Um, John and I, two years ago, drove a a U-Haul truck full of toys across Chicago, the south side of Chicago, and we pulled up to some houses that they literally had nothing under the tree when we went in there. So it was wow. heartwarming for us to be able to just give back to people who 
who wouldn't receive otherwise and hopefully I think in giving back you create an, a snowball effect and an impression upon someone out there that if someone gave something to you that they would in turn do the same for the in the future to someone else and I think that that would create will improve humanity and, and create a better civilization for the rest of us yes yes I'm here for that yes, thank you. and I mean thank you for the work you're doing in that space thank because I mean, I've not been a child that woke up on Christmas and was like, I don't think I'm going to have anything under the tree. Yeah, right, so like right, that right, privilege that right, we have, right, yeah, um, I don't yeah, take lightly. And yeah. I think that's amazing that you yeah. guys are doing this work because there are so many kids right. that do not have like gifts that they receive. That that, and it's not that about the gifts, right? But true. it's also like you're a kid. You're a kid. You know what yeah. I mean? Like let yeah. kids be kids exactly. and enjoy exactly. this time of year. Exactly. You know, they live in conditions that are not necessarily the greatest. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're looked at as statistics. Like let a kid be a kid. Yeah. And like yeah. that in itself, what you guys are doing is yeah. allowing that space for children to, yeah. to take up their room to yeah, be a, right. a exactly. kid. Yeah, and I have to give a shout out to my mom too. My mom... You know, every every Christmas season, we always had a ton of stuff under the tree. And then I remember growing up, we wouldn't just celebrate Christmas for ourselves. She would take us to the store and take stuff that she had bought for family members who weren't as fortunate. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have no gold spoons in our mouth. But she just, my grandmother had a saying that we know that on Christmas Day, Christmas is 364 days away. So mm-hmm. if you don't have, you have all the time you need to prepare to get a gift for someone. And a gift is not just, it doesn't have to be really expensive. It could be whatever you, yeah. you can create a gift out of something, products in your home. Yes. So, you know, I grew up with great, really great Christmas season. So that's why I love to give back during Christmas time. Well, we appreciate all of you guys you. and all what you do. It is truly amazing. What is something that's upcoming that you guys are, are working? I know you mentioned um, a little bit about it, but the mentoring program, but do mm-hmm. you mind like kind of elaborating on that and saying how people can get involved? Yeah. So, um, you know, we'll be rolling out more information about the mentoring program soon. We hope to be in May hosting a private dinner to celebrate Chicago public school principals. And we also have been connected with the company, and we are hoping to, we can't, we've signed the NDA, so we hope to create a shoe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to somebody <laughs> that we know. A shoe that celebrates Chicago and the spirit of giving all at the same time. So we look forward to doing that. All I got to say is I better get a pair because I know you who it is. You definitely need to get the pair. Y'all, these shoes are about to be so, so shy fly. I'm so excited about that. So... What can we also look forward to uh, in 2020 and 2021? Are you guys doing anything with the election? Um, And and, and, I mean, I know you're 501c3, but like any like get out the vote type things or anything like that? No, we're not doing anything with the with the election. You know, we observe the the laws of the state of Illinois and the federal laws. We we believe that we have to adhere to the, the uh, separation of church you and state. You are mission based, honey. <laughs> we are mission based only. So we do encourage everyone we know to vote because voting is the only way that we keep our government intact. But we don't really involve ourselves in that. We're more concerned with br- providing food for the families who probably need just a little bit of that in their table, and you know a good spirit of giving to people who are in need. Yeah. So taking off, this is me literally taking off a hat, your Shy Gives Back hat. Mm -hmm. Let's put on your Corey Marshall, consultant to all political candidates who have won. (laughs) Because every person you work for has won their election. Most of them, yes, they have been very successful. Even here in the District of Columbia, I was was, uh, managing Tommy Wells' campaign. He's now an advisor to the current mayor, 
Mario Bowser here in in uh, Washington D.C. So, how does one even get to that kind of like role in life? You know what? Um, people ask that question a lot. I would say that when I was in the fourth grade, I was on student council, and I um, remember being able to set the price of candy, to change the price of candy, to give discounts to those folks who might not have had enough money to buy candy, oh. and to then decide what we would do with the sales, the funds from uh, concessions during halftime shows and, and even to um, give awards to t- teachers who were our favorite teachers as members of, as a member of the student government. And that's just how the country works. That's just how the world yeah. works. We, our politicians take the uh, tax dollars and they create programming that hopefully is improving the life for not just some people, but all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't always get that right, but that's why I'm in, engaged in politics. And that's why I've worked on campaigns and that, that, um, I guess civic engagement as a student turned into um, my current political activism and engagement and even the career that I've built up. Thank God that I've been able to do so. And I didn't know that I was political when I was younger. I just knew that I liked to be involved. I liked to volunteer a lot. I didn't know I was a Democrat. No one told me I was. Yeah. I think my values just um, aligned. I believe in equality and I think that Democrats do too. I would say. And um, so that, that the desire to want to be involved and, to know, to know that, in fact, if you are involved, if you have an ink pen that could help change a life, then that's something that I've always just been inclined to do. Like, uh, it was a preternatural interest, something that was, a, I guess, if it was a, if in civic engagement, civic engagement in politics was a body of water, then I would say I was some type of fish or something. Oh, wow. Because it's where I see myself naturally. It's where I naturally operate and thrive at my, and, and operate at my best. Yeah, and people, he's won elections. From here to there, he's everywhere with it. I, we appreciate the work you've done. So how can people get in touch with you, Corey? Uh, if they want to connect, reach out, speak to you, learn more from you, mm-hmm. how can they connect with you? I would love for you to um, follow me on Instagram. It's Corey Marshall, K-O-U-R-I, Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, Corey Marshall on Instagram, or Corey C. Marshall on Twitter and all my followers are real. So yeah, he don't have to pay for followers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have one last question. What is your favorite rosé? My favorite rosé would be any rosé that the rosé hour is recommending. So (laughs) go ahead and give me that that rosé list because I look forward to having a sip. Yes, and you know, I do know a good (laughs) rosé. I also know good restaurants that have brunch. So let's just talk about this for one quick second. To yesterday, mm-hmm. we went to La Vie. And La Vie, La Vie if you're oh, listening, nice. uh, you have you have like some pictures, La Vie, uh, La Vie here at nice. the Wharf in D.C. Go yeah. ahead. La Vie pew, is pew, nice. uh, Give me some sponsorship. Y'all yeah. dope. Yeah. Um, La Vie is their incredible. brunch. La Vie is have incredible. you been there? I did. I have had a chance to go there. It's an incredible. I mean, when you if you're looking for a dope vibe, yeah. you know, some good rose, oh. La Vie is where you want to go. Some good tostados. Uh, say la vie. Uh, right with the view of the river. Uh, you know, the wharf, the waterfront here in Washington, DC. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Probably one of my top three places in DC. I'm gonna it's, go ahead and fantastic. say it's probably one of my top three. Yes, yeah, it's, it's dope. Well, it's Corey, dope. this has been more than amazing, more awesome. I'm just so thankful for <laughs> Thank you. you and for Thank coming you for on the show. On. Thank you so Thank much. You. Cheers. All right, All right Thank you. Sip, sip, hooray. <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. Yay. <laughs> wow, Corey, you are right. That was good. That was probably one of the best interviews. Next up, a quick commercial. 
But when we return, we're going to hear from Carly Pildes, who talks about some of the advocating she does. Hey there, friends, and welcome to the Rosie Hour podcast. I'm here today with someone that I met many moons ago here in D.C. while she was working on a campaign. I'm not going to say for who, but he won being president at that time. <laughs> She's Jewish. She's an advocate for health care. She's an advocate for the people and making sure that communities are reflective of their people and everybody has opportunities to be great. She's a mother and one of the best ones I've ever met. Carly Pildes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you, Carly, for coming. And how are you liking the rosé thus far? The rosé is excellent. I'm really enjoying it. Yes, we have a BB sparkling rosé. I think that's the BB. Yeah. That's what we're going with, right? We're going with BB. We're going with BB. All right. Well, cool. Well, Carly, we're so happy for you to be on the show. I want you to tell the listeners more about you. So if you would, just give us a little rundown of your life and what you got going on and what you've been doing and where you come from. All of the amazing things about you. Awesome. Uh, so I'll start, you know, right in 2016. I, I was in this place where, you know, every everything felt like it was coming together perfectly. I had my dream job at Results, which is a great organization, www.results.org, fighting HIV AIDS, fighting for global maternal and child health, training young people, about 50% of whom were young people of color, um, to really make their voices heard in Congress on global health and on global health advocacy. I had just bought a house and I was and continue to be thankfully married to the love of my life and was pregnant with our firstborn daughter. Um, and then election day happened and everything changed. I remember, re- you know, I am married to a Ghanaian American Jewish man. And I say that three times fast. Ghanaian American Jewish man, Ghanaian American Jewish man, Ghanaian American Jewish man, black Jewish. We are all of the mixedness. We are all of the melting pot. We are America. We make America great. I said it fast and politicized it. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we were in this place for most of our relationship where we were this thing that people celebrated. It's so great. Like, you're this mixed couple. You're this, like, double minority family. How cool. Like, being our brochure, being our friends. Like, we love that. And then really overnight, we became something people worried about. Like, are you guys going to be okay What's going to happen to families like you? What's going to happen to Jews? Mm. What's going to happen to black people in America? Now now you're about to have this black Jewish woman that you're raising. And that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, a lot of oppression on six pounds of child. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of expectations. So I really went through this evolution where I spent more and more of my time uh, fighting anti-Semitism, fighting racism, and writing really openly and honestly about like, what does it mean to be raising our beautiful, awesome, black presenting Jewish child in this age of, you know, it's not that the bigotry ever went away, but it's become very forward facing. Yeah. You know, what does it mean to raise a child who has lockdown drills, who thinks that all synagogues have metal detectors and does like that doesn't even register to her as like a thing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, in the age of Trump, in the post tree of life Judaism, and in in a space that just has enormous tension and enormous fear. So I started writing about that. And the more I wrote about it, the more people asked me to write about it. And the more I found just a real hunger for, for stories about families that are living at all of these intersecting oppressions and are trying to talk about that in really open and honest ways yeah. and really empowering ways. And in ways that really are focused on uplifting communities and uplifting people and empowering people. Um, so one of the first things that happened is I managed to get myself really embroiled in this Women's March controversy. So speak more about I, that. Yeah, I started writing about the Women's March and some of the tensions they were having with the Jewish community, mm-hmm. really from the perspective of I'm a feminist I have a black Jewish daughter and I really need to push for these spaces to be spaces that I can be in and that she can grow up and be in and and that strive to hear each other and listen to each other. Right. Um, And I didn't do it by, you know, name calling or demanding that people be fired. But I did say, you know, we need to create spaces where we call each other in and where we ask each other to do hard work. And we also recognize our own privilege um, you wanted accountability, responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it was a crazy moment because there was so much noise about the anti-Semitism in the Women's March and a lot of anger and a lot of fear. You know, a lot of people don't realize that as that time was happening, we were seeing this huge surge in hate crimes against the Jewish community. Yeah. You know, something like 300, um, actually way more than that, but hundreds of you know, bomb threats called into Jewish preschools and Jewish community centers and just this big climate of fear. So what I tried to do is really cut through that and put forth some asks, some real actionable things that people could do. Add Jewish women to the unity principles, meet with Jewish leadership, um, you know, put out an apology. Yeah. And not do that in a way that was really focused on like, I want to end someone's career. I'm so mad because I don't really think that works generally. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there are instances where it does, but I don't think that's like the go-to. This wasn't what that situation exactly as a result. And, you know, we saw enormous change in the organization. Now, the other ask was to add Jewish members. So now has Jewish members, including a black Jewish woman, you know, it has added Jewish women to its unity principles. Eventually, you know, when people ask me about it now, I'm like, they, they've done all the things I've asked. Yeah. I think that's incredible. Um, I think that's a great thing. I really do. And so the more I started looking at my own community and the fear it was having, the more I ended up becoming a leader in the community really accidentally. It's not something I like sought out. Right. My mom is a rabbi, so she's super thrilled. Um, <laughs> she's like, I always knew you'd be in the community full time. And I'm like, I really didn't mean to be. It just kind of happened. It's natural. It's organic. Yeah, yeah. it is organic. And, you know, I ended up um, when the Tree of Life shooting happened, mm. I was really stunned because I got all these phone calls from Forward, which is the biggest Jewish uh, newspaper in America and the oldest, you know, from Tabla Magazine, from the Jewish Chronicle, all these papers saying, like, we need your take on this. And I remember, like, I was so devastated because we knew that American Jewish life, like, there had been this shift and it would not be the same. And I remember, like, 
I didn't want my daughter to see me cry. So I asked my husband to take her out for the day. And I sat in my bathroom on the floor, like in front of the space heater. And I wrote like seven op-eds. Wow. (laughs) I just like, my husband was like, this is not a normal thing you're doing. And I was like. Well, it was therapeutic. Yeah. And now he was like, just want to make sure you're aware that sitting on the floor in your bathroom is not like super normal behavior. I mean, I mean, I don't know what woman I am friends with that hasn't done that. And I was that. like, I'm cool. Just go away. And he was yeah, like, let me I be. will give you that space. Um, and, you know, was really proud and surprised to feel that my community really wanted to hear my voice in that moment and was asking for it. And then I got the call from Tablet asking if I would join them as a contributing editor. I was oh, wow. really shocked. Um, and I remember we were at a party a couple weeks later and someone was like, are you Carly Pildes, the writer? And I said, no. I was like, no, I'm the organizer that works the results. And they were like, my husband very sweetly sort of tapped my shoulder. And he was like, yes, she's Carly Pildes, contributing editor at Tablet Magazine. She writes yes. about Jewish issues and race issues and uh, justice issues. And I'm very proud of her. And I was like, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> um, so and, you 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 weren't owning it. It sounds like yeah, it that took a minute you to had grow a voice. Into. Yeah, and then it seemed like you know there was a shift where your father kind of helped guide you to to accept that you are giving this voice that was so necessary and needed and wanted. And I think the hard thing is because that career shift of being in anti-Semitism work and anti-racism work came out of such pain. I think in the beginning, I had some real guilt. Yeah. I called my friend, Rabbi Ruthie Reagan, who's just like incredible. And I said, I don't feel good. Like, like, like this terrible thing happened and and people died. And like, I made money and got promoted. Mm. Like this horrible. I never thought about that perspective. yeah, Yeah. This horrible tension happened with the feminist movement and with my community and I gained notoriety off of it. And mm. I, I don't feel good about that. It feels like blood money. And she said, I'm sorry, did you do the work? Did you write the articles? And did you have the meetings? And, and did you, did you do the work? And I said, yeah. And she's like, did that work cost you physically and emotionally? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, so then why on earth do you not deserve to get paid? Yeah. Uh, so. Well, and I feel like that's that component about yeah. women where mm-hmm. we are guilted and feeling like, okay, this is not necessarily something where I should be getting these accolades. I shouldn't be getting accolades. I'm supposed to be in the background working. Yeah. And to get that accolades, it's kind of like not as normal as what we would like to see women, where it's a normalcy. And, you know, having that experience, I feel like I'm glad you're sharing that. So yeah. when women are in these spaces, mm-hmm. they're able to say like, hey, I can accept that I'm doing something good. Yeah, and it took a long time to accept that. Um, And it's funny, like, I I always tell people, like, for us, like, the experience of, like, having a Black Jewish daughter within two weeks of Trump being elected. And I remember going to work on Election Day, and you remember what Washington was like, just full-scale panic. Yeah, and actually, that was my birthday. So, yeah, every election cycle, it's kind of... Every four years, it's kind of odd for me. It's hit or miss if it's going to be fun or not. So, mm-hmm. yeah, totally understand. <laughs> um, I remember, like, I went into work the next day, and, you know, in the global health community, there was a lot of, panic is a strong word, but, you know, Hillary Clinton is a leader on global health and right. in foreign aid and a really global mind. President Trump is the opposite of that. There was a lot of sadness, fear, 
and a, a, a you know a readiness to gear up and fight, but for a lot of people, a need to be sad first. And I was like, I can't really do that. I'm nine months pregnant. My biggest job today is to not go into labor, so I have to tell everyone that everything is going to be fine. Mm. But for me, like the election, the huge surge in anti-Semitism in this country, and that's when coinciding with motherhood um, was a just an event that is so cataclysmic, it changes your life course forever. Yeah. And I look back and like I joke about it all the time. I'm like, I came to Washington to fight AIDS. I don't know what happened. <laughs> it, it just, you know, Trump got elected and things happened. Well, and I mean, like, we sometimes think that our fight is just one fight, right? Yeah. And it seemed like your voice is necessary in so many arenas, right? It's not just on the global scale of fighting AIDS mm. and HIV, but it also goes into like women, you know, yeah. and and the initiatives that are out there that are not as inclusive as they ought to be. And you providing mm-hmm. the space to say, hey, uh, did you forget some people? Yeah. And I, I, I think I say this with a lot of love and no shade. There are a lot of really amazing Jewish community professionals who have dedicated their life to the Jewish community. And that happens. And then they don't spend a ton of time outside of it. And that's not everyone. There are some people that's not true of. But like, you know, they go to Jewish day school and then they are president of their, you know, Jewish Dems chapter on campus. And and they're in their lane and they're great at what they do. But I intersectionality and diversity inclusion is. And when they did partner, it was and when they did partner and do partner. It's at the very high level. It's mm-hmm. it's grass tops. It, it's advocacy days. And that's incredible work. I certainly don't mean to undermine it in any way. But they haven't. I didn't. I mean, I certainly have always been a religious Jew. Um, but like I didn't come up in the Jewish space. So I understand things about the progressive space and I understand things about working with other communities in a different way. Right. So people often look at me and they'll be like, Carly, do you think intersectionality is bad for Jews and needs to be like destroyed? And I'll be like, intersectionality is designed to analyze how black women are hurt in America in ways that are not captured often by male-focused civil rights movements or by white women-focused feminist movements. Yeah. If, we, if we focus intersectionality on black women, who, by the way, like, still are dying in childbirth at four times the rate, still yeah. are paid less, like, we even, like, fixed that. Yeah. Um, as opposed to being like, we need to fight this because we don't feel hurt enough. Like, let's refocus intersectionality on what it was supposed to be. Right. But, they, like, they've never read the essay. Um, And that's not everyone, but it's a lot of people. Well, and I think, too, because like intersectionality has become sort of like one of those buzzwords, right? Mm -hmm. Where especially in the advocacy space uh, and more specifically in the grassroots world, uh, intersectionality has become a coined term that you should and ought to say versus a thing that people understand and implement. So to your point, it's it's more of like rhetoric. Well, and I get it. Like, I, I think a lot of people in my community hear that term and they hear that they won't be welcomed. Yep. Um, and I have certainly heard people attempt to influence it that way, but you can address someone misusing a terminology or perhaps manipulating it without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. And what is very strange to me, I mean, I live on the left. I'm a Democrat. I've worked in progressive spaces my whole career, um, But because I was such a vocal criticism of the Women's March within my own community, people on the right and center right 
respect me. Yeah. Um, so when I talk to them about racism or about immigration or about feminism, they don't, they can't write me off so quickly. They're like, well, Carly Pildes is a diehard Zionist. Like Carly Pildes, this, that, and the other thing. And she held the left accountable. So then when I go and I'm like, you want to talk about anti-Semitism, you got to have something to say about your neighbor being deported, man. Yeah. They can't write me off so easily. Oh, and I like that. Yeah. Because it's a balance. Like you said, it's a balance of mm-hmm. saying like, hey, we're, we have issues. Yes. Yeah. Our our uh, group, our people, our community has problems that need fixing and mm-hmm. that are things that we identify with. But we cannot be so focused on our plight that we're not helping others. Because yeah. as soon as one goes down, if someone's not helping you, you know, or helping themselves, they can't help each other. And it's sort of like, where does it end and begin where people are able to say, let's all help each other? Because when mm-hmm. we all are getting what we need and are treated fairly, we all win. And the thing you need to understand about anti-Semitism, and I think anti-Semitism is really hard for people in progressive spaces to understand. Because like, look, we can be real. Like, they'll be like, Jews are fine. A lot of them live in the suburbs. They tend, like, in terms of minority groups, they're on the upper end of the economic spectrum. They're more likely to have a master's degree. What's What do you want from us, man? Um, but then when you look at broader Jewish history, which, like, isn't taught in public schools, Correct. which is somewhat understandable given our population size. Um, and, and if you look at the whole sort of system— Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. So it actually functions better Mm. when Jews have a level of success. So then it's, you have success, and you have success because you're bad. You have success because you're evil, because you're manipulative, and you steal from people. Oh, yes. I've heard this conspiracy theory before where, I mean, and if you look at, unfortunately, um, what has happened to the Jewish community Mm -hmm. and, and, and history it's because Jews were looked at as demons, bad people, uh, thieves, things of that nature. And so your success is used against you. Yeah. Amy Cuddy, who's a psychologist, wrote a great piece called The Psychology of Anti-Semitism. And she said, you look at these particular minority groups, Jews being one of them, and you look throughout their history and you'll see these situations where they're fine, they're upper middle class, they're integrated, and then two, three years later— mass extermination event. Yeah. And how is that possible? Because they're often viewed as competent, but they're not loved. They're not really They're accepted. not likable, quote They unquote. can be your accountant, but you don't want to get drunk with them. They're your doctors. Yeah. But not the bartender. Exactly. Um, and so then when there's a moment of political instability, uh, it is very easy to decide that they're at fault. Mm-hmm. Um, And one of the things I have talked a lot about is like when you're fighting anti-Semitism and you're talking about anti-Semitism as it manifests with groups that experience a high level of oppression, um, you have to fight the oppression and the anti-Semitism hand in hand. Yeah. So when you look at a figure who's become like a big buzzword in my community, like Farrakhan, how is he able to push such cruel really anti-Semitic, very similar to like sort of Nazi or czarist classic anti-Semitism tropes is because there's so, he's looking at communities that are really suffering um, and rightfully feel mad about it. 
and yeah. are looking for empowerment and evolution and rightfully want someone to blame. So it so why do I bring that up? Because if you want to fight anti-Semitism, I say this to other Jews all the time, you have to fight racism and you have to fight for feminism and you have to fight for gay rights. Out of the goodness of our heart, yes, but also because anti-Semitism functions well when the actual powers that be need a scapegoat. And then that's what your people become. Yeah. And it sounds like Does that too, sense? it's like a default mechanism, yeah. right? Um, if I don't have something and everyone around me doesn't, but I see the people across the street from me do, and I see that they aren't doing anything different. They just do. They're just a different type of person than I. Well, then what are they doing that's not yeah. something that I'm doing? And it becomes this whole, well, it's because of this. This is why they have success versus there's a bigger force at play that's keeping us all from succeeding and being successful. Absolutely. Um, there's a writer I really like. His name is Eric Ward. And he, you know, is a black man who researches white nationalism uh, and has spent like a lot of time with white nationalist movements and with researchers like doing person-to-person interviews, trying to understand the movement. And he came to the conclusion, like, as a black man doing fairly frontline anti-extremism work, he was like, I have to learn everything about anti-Semitism and make it a cornerstone of the organization I work for, which is the Western State Center. Ah, um, I thought I knew that name. Okay. Yeah. And people were like, what? Why? And he was like, because if you look at what's happening with white nationalism now, you have the situation where if you're a white supremacist and you built your whole belief system on the idea that you were genetically superior, how, how do you explain that you lost the civil rights movement ultimately? How do you explain black achievement? You need a conspiracy theory that can animate that for you. So what does that become? Jews. Mm. It's not that black people are equal. It's that those Jews in their conspiracy are using are using them as pawns in their war against white people. It's funny when you say it out loud like that. It sounds so crazy. I mean, but it like, sounds a little like, okay. But when you start, <laughs> no, it's totally nutburgers. Let's be clear. Nutburgers being a very technical term. Yeah, 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 I know. Um, but he has written a lot about like the common cause of, you know, black Americans, of Muslim Americans, of generally like non-white people and Jews and how, like people often look at anti-Semitism as this like separate thing that maybe doesn't matter as much, mm-hmm. which is somewhat understandable given the economic privilege that a lot of Jews enjoy in this country, including me. But when you look at the holistic dismantling of hate, all of these things then actually are really deeply connected, especially when you're talking about extremism. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's just like, you know, when you talk about history, right? Whose story do you hear? The yeah. victors, right? Mm-hmm. You never hear the the person who loses or the an- annihilated populace yeah. because they're not there to tell their story. It's so, so funny, like raising a kid in the Jewish culture, like really reminds you of like how much violence is in your history and how much you've accepted it. Yeah. Like we're about to celebrate Purim, which in modern times we're like, you get drunk, you wear costumes, you make special cookies. It's a grand old time. Never even heard of Purim, but okay. (laughs) It commemorates the failed attempt at genocide of Persian Jews. Oh. So like, wait, I'm sorry. It's a celebration. That Jews were not killed in Persia in the, I don't remember what year. 
Yeah, okay. Ever ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So it's like they joke that a lot of Jewish holidays are they tried to kill us, they didn't, let's eat. Purim is they tried to kill us, they didn't, let's drink. So my daughter came home and she was like, I learned the Purim story. There was a bad, bad boy and he didn't want to play nicely with Jews. And then they made him leave Persia. And I was like, oh, like this is the beginning of you learning that everyone tried to kill us all the time. Wow. And like, we're going to eat cookies and you're going to dance. And as you get older, we'll slowly, slowly integrate you. And look, the generation I grew up in, we learned about the Holocaust that, I don't know, five, six, because like our parents, they didn't want us to learn about it. Not with them. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, it's also true. I think anything that is like of that seriousness to a youth, I think sometimes yeah. communities feel let kids be kids a little bit longer um, because it also sways them, you know, into Feelings not only about themselves, but how others treat them and about other people. Oh, totally. We're trying to let yeah. her be a kid as long as possible. Yeah, but I, but I, I do appreciate, uh, and I can't even remember when I started learning about not only Caribbean history or the transatlantic slave trade mm-hmm. or about how, you know, slavery first started. But I do know that it definitely wasn't with care. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't like, hey, this may be traumatic for you because we know that, you know, it, uh, trauma transfers from DNA, you know, for generation to generation. And so when we teach, you know, about slavery and all those things, and I can speak from that end because I am mm-hmm. black. Um, we don't have that kind of like, hey, let's take it step by step in an introduction to and I appreciate, and I mean, if we do that in our culture, I just don't know. So I don't want to like generalize, mm-hmm. but I hear for your community, like with your your daughter's story coming home from school uh, and learning about this as a first thing. And like, it's the introduction of what continues to happen uh, to the community is very just intriguing, but it also sounds like it has the ability to let children understand in the terms of growing up yeah. versus like hitting them over the head with like, your people were beaten and raped and pillaged. You know what totally. I mean? It's, so, it's, yeah. it's so, I, 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 I want to know how can we learn or if we, and again, people, if we do this in the black community or other communities do this, I, I just don't know. And I'm not generalizing, but and, how, how is this like a cultural thing that like when you go to pre-K, like this starts then? Yeah. I mean, Esther's in pre-K, like she's starting to learn, like the next two holidays, Purim is attempted genocide. Pesach is slavery and liberation. So like you learn those piece by piece. I will say that like, our community still struggles with like how and when to talk about the Holocaust. That's much more recent as is slavery. Um, So like I had a really long talk with my mother who I love and is an incredible Jewish educator. And she was like, I told you the truth. I told, I remember in kindergarten, I wanted to take home a book about the Holocaust and the librarian called my mother. Oh wow. And she was like, it's her history. She can read whatever she wants. Wow. And like, she was like, I, I don't know. Like, it was just different. Like, you knew survivors. You you, you had them in your family. We had them around. Yeah. Like, we wanted you to know the truth. She's like, it'll be different for your kid, and, and you'll do it more gradually. Yeah. But it, it's a hard thing. Like, 
and, and we talk about it a lot at our house. Like how, like, you know, how do we talk about Jewishness and how do we talk about blackness? And I think at the moment, she's so young and such like a happy, dancing, little positive person. Yeah. And, and it's a weird thing between wanting to be honest and, and wanting to protect that and wanting to instill pride. Yes. So like we talk a lot about custom and we mm. talk a lot about beauty and we talk like, you're so beautiful. I love your beautiful, natural black hair. It's so pretty. Um so quick question. Yeah. Do you, and, and, and again, this is not a diss or a question. It's just sure. a question. Why do you say your beautiful black hair versus your beautiful hair? Oh, I just say your beautiful hair. Oh, okay. To be clear. Yeah, yeah, She yeah. just, I'm just. Unless it's like the color. No, yeah. I just say your hair is so beautiful. And I know like she is smart enough to notice that my hair takes a minute and her ta- <laughs> hers doesn't. So like, and like she's. Like she wants to play and jump and she doesn't want to hold still. So, you know, if her hair, especially like if she's having a moment where her hair needs a little extra love, I'm like, you're so beautiful. You're so lucky. You're so beautiful. Oh, what beautiful hair. Like I emphasize that. I just meant as to make the distinction as a mixed kid. She definitely, you know, her hair is not like mine. I can brush my hair and style it in three to four minutes. It doesn't happen for her. Um, yeah, I so, trust me. I, yeah. I know. <laughs> so we try to emphasize beauty and joy and love and songs and here's Ghanaian food, here's Jewish food. We go to synagogue. But it was like a reminder that having to talk about other things is coming. Yeah. More wine, please. Of course. <laughs> Bartender. <laughs> no, this is really great. And like this rosé is kicking in, is it not? Yeah, for sure. BB, you did a good job with this marquee rosé. Yeah. Um, and bartender, yes, there you go. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I think I right now I see myself as someone who really um is trying to build bridges, thank you, and is trying to help people understand where each other is coming from and urge communities to talk about that trauma together and yeah. understand that trauma. Uh, and like doesn't posit that my own community is perfect. Sometimes I think, like, and I know people who fall into this, like they're advocating for their own community and thus their community is like perfection. And yeah. like, I don't do that. Like, yeah, I criticize my own community with love. I, I talk about the places where we're falling down and I do that with a lot of love. Well, and it, like where there's ups, there's downs. Yeah. And there's always rooms for op- rooms, excuse me, rooms. Yeah. Rose's kicking in. All right. Room for opportunity. Right. And like, we can't grow if we don't notice those things. Yeah. And, like, we had, like, a really, you know, it hasn't been a great couple years for my community, and it has been a really rough couple months. You know, in New York, we had this huge wave of terror attacks right during Hanukkah. It was really tragic. By my last count, it was 15 in, like, like a two-week period. Uh, And we had the anti-Semitic hate crime and terror attack in Jersey City and in Muncie. Um, And people started coming to me and saying, you know, we we don't know what happened everywhere, but we know in Jersey City and in Muncie, the perpetrators were black. Like, what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for your black and Jewish family? I'm not black, but my husband is. And my daughter is certainly black presenting. Uh, and for the first couple of days, I didn't really want to answer the question. Uh, and, you know, we talked about how 
that was scary and painful for us. Yeah. And then what I started to come out was a couple different things. I finally sat down and like wrote a big article about it. And like it took a lot of time and a lot of emotionalness. Oh, yeah. But like I, I finally started to say a couple things. One, like there are 42 million black people in America. Three of them did a terrible thing. So how does that affect Black-Jewish relations? Ultimately, I don't believe it should. Yeah. Uh, I think it's an opportunity, actually, for these communities to come together and say— Let's heal. Let's heal. Let's talk about how horrible things happened. Let's talk about how these are scary times for both of our communities and support each other. And I'll point out that every Black member of Congress came out again, come out, came out and said— you know, that they condemned these attacks. So did the current president of the NAACP. So did Sherilyn Ifill. So did Cornell Brooks three times. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, starting to see people who are often like just anti-Semitism is not an issue they talk about a lot. Like um, Anthony Beckford from Black Lives Matter Brooklyn being like, wow, like this is horrible and I want to learn all about it. Yeah. And then he talked about how he was in the bus and saw like a ultra-Orthodox, they actually don't like that term, a Hasidic family of being harassed. And, and he got up in the guy's face and he was like, no. Yeah. Like, stop harassing these people with their kids on the bus. Like, back off. They're just doing what they need to do. To and now he wouldn't have go. thought, he might not have done that before, but like he had seen what unchecked hatred, unchecked hatred had done. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, you know, I, you talk about a moment that like, you have to ask, like, so who do you want to be in that moment? Do you want to be a person that, like, lets your fear drive you into racism? Yeah. Do you want to be a person who hurts a lot of communities? Do you want to be a person that tries to build bridges and tries to say there are a lot of people hurting right now? And so, you know, I'm going to write about it. I'm going to get on panels about it. And I'm going to talk about bridge building and understanding pain and coming together and, and we have to talk about, you know, who benefits from hate and who's driving hate. Yeah, there are. There, and that's the thing I think people mm -hmm. forget, too, that there are winners when someone oh, is yeah. hating. And, and let's be clear, when black communities and Jewish communities, and I say communities, plural, because none of these places are monolith. Yeah. None of these people are monolith. They're very diverse. Um, and there are plenty of black Jews, as I know, because I live with two. Um <laughs> You know, there are people that benefit when we're at odds. And who benefits? The white supremacist, the white nationalist, mm -hmm. and the people who maybe they wouldn't claim that, but they certainly benefit from it politically. Yeah, mm. that's very true. And I think that calling it out and when we all see wrong, you know, mm -hmm. I the Metro here in Washington, D.C. has one of the best slogans I've ever heard. And I've, I don't know why more people don't use it. See something, say something. Same thing applies when you see something being done mm -hmm. wrong to someone or an injustice. Say something. It yeah. doesn't cost you anything. And yes, no. sometimes things get a little rough and people get out of character. You don't have to be rude and disrespectful. You can just let someone know like, hey, I'm here and I'm standing with this person. And the two of us standing mm -hmm. together is stronger than your weak self. Absolutely. I heard Duray McKesson speak a couple months ago and he was like, you know, white supremacy is like smog. Like, you just breathe it in. Yeah. And the best thing you can do is try to not breathe it out. 
So like when you get that that is the context. We grew up in a world that's misogynistic. We grew up in a world that's hard on women. We grew up in a world that's anti-black. We grew up in a world that's anti-Semitic. So like we're marinating in it all the time, right? So like, of course, it's going to pop out of your mouth once in a while or pop into your thoughts once in a while. So when someone says to me like, hey, Carly, like you're my friend, but I I think today you really missed it. So what do you say? Do you say, how dare you? Look at my record. Hi, blah, 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 blah. No, you say, hey, ma'am. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you. And I appreciate the energy you put into telling me when I made a mistake. Uh, I, I would love to learn more about that. How can I be better? How can I be better? Yeah. Right. It's an opportunity to learn. So people tell me all the time, like, you know, like, how, how, how should I respond? I'm like, well, first of all, like, take a deep breath mm-hmm. and understand that, like, <laughs> if you have a black friend and they're telling you you're racist or you're engaging in racism more accurately— That's an investment in you and your friendship. If they didn't care about you, why would they bother to, I don't know if we can swear on this. Why would they bother to fuck with it? Why would they not just go home? Yeah. Like if I tell you like, hey buddy, like you're my friend and what you said is misogynistic. I remember like when I was really, really pregnant, like visibly pregnant, we were out with friends and we were with this male colleague of mine who I love very much. And he was like, so like, what's your plan to cut back on work? You're going to go part time. And I was like getting a little comfortable. And my husband finally was like, hey, man, you didn't ask me what my plan was. I'm a full time graduate student. Yeah. So like, maybe I'll go part time for a semester. You know, like. Yeah. Why don't you ask what is our family plan? Yeah. Versus like, oh, so you can't work anymore because you had a kid. And I was like, I'm just going to sip my sparkling water Ah! and let this happen. This is great. Well, now you're speaking your sparkling water. Yeah, now I'm not pregnant, which is great. So he was like, and our friend was like, you know what? You're totally right. I'm sorry. And, And that was it. And he was like, you're right. I shouldn't have assumed that all of the family adjustment would fall on the mother. And I was like, you're cool. Just, you know, a lot of people fall into that. Yeah. Um, and the more you can own that, the better. But yeah, I'm doing a lot of writing. I'm doing a lot of speaking. Uh, you can check out CarlyPoldis.com. I'm at CarlyPoldis on Twitter. Uh, and pushing my community to be the best it can be and to build bridges. Do you mind spelling that for people? Because, oh, you know. C-A-R-L-Y-P-I-L-D-I-D as in dog, I-S. Yes. Yeah. And so I asked this question to everyone on the podcast. And you, when we were just talking before we started, mm-hmm. seem to have already your answer as you are flipping your hair yes. ready to go. What's your favorite rosé? Chandon. Chandon sparkling rosé is my that favorite. makes sense. If you know Carly, you know Chandon hmm. is her favorite. <laughs> I, mean, I think we had some one point in time. Oh, yes. Years ago. I think it was at one of your satyrs, actually. Yeah. I actually, and I remember I met up with you a couple years ago. I had just gotten promoted and we bought a couple of bottles of pink Chandon to celebrate. Yeah, and, and, and just so people know, no, we are not K Street advocates. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lobbyists, we are very, very grassroot friendly. Uh, it's, so. Look, here's the thing about Moen Chandon is like the higher level brand. Chandon is there more sort of, I don't want to. Ow, they they hijack the price. Really? Oh my God, yeah. Especially if you go to like certain like U Street. Oh, you can't buy liquor on U Street. Oh my God. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, first of all, if you go to Brookland to buy everything is less expensive. Well, one, shout out to Brookland. Um, Yes. 
best happy hour prices I have seen oh my God, yeah. on Great Eatery because you can get an entire pizza for $5. Well, and we have to get you to come all the way there. So yeah. we have to offer some discounts. Yeah, um, true, true, true. <laughs> but no, I like Chandon. It retails about $25 a bottle uh, for a nice occasion. Um, you know, I like things not too sweet. It's dry. It's bubbly. Uh, it won't make you talk about extremism. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, BB does, and that's okay. <laughs> because, you know what, these hard conversations, sometimes it's easier to do when you have a little some of the sip-sip. So, yeah. I think the more you have the hard conversations, the more it feels liberating. Yeah. Well, so it people, doesn't become as hard. Yeah. So, like, one of my friends said to me a couple of weeks ago, she was like, damn, Carly, like, you jumped to talking about traumatic intergenerational violence quick. I mean, I'm just going to say you jumped in it today, but like, hey, I'm here for it. But my thing is, is like the more you grapple with that history in an open and honest way, the more liberated you feel, at least for me, it's not for everyone. For me, the more liberated you feel, the more healed you feel and the more comfortable you feel, especially when you're trying to articulate your experience to other communities. That's very true. And well, Carly. We are so thankful that you are here today. We know that you had to uh, skip picking up your daughter to come make it here today. So shout out to your daughter. We appreciate your mommy. Thank you. And Carly, just one last time. How can people connect with you if they have questions, want to connect, uh, see you on social media, all of the the things of ways people can connect with you one more time. Awesome. You can connect with me at Carly, C-A-R-L-Y. Pildis, sorry, Carly Pildis, P-I-L-D-I-S dot com, <laughs> or at Carly Pildis on Twitter or email me Carly at Carly dot com. Uh, I'm always around to talk. Well, thank you, Carly. Really appreciate you being here. And thank you for sharing so many insightful words and stories and actually, you know, talking about some hard issues that Thanks. made it so much more easier over this sparkling rosé. If everyone could just come together with a nice bottle of rosé, man, we could fix the whole thing. Yeah, we could fix all problems, except, you know, that one thing called the election. But we'll talk about that next episode. <laughs> all right. <take> <laughs> Thanks, Carly. Cheers on that. Wow. Can't believe it. It's our seventh episode. And we... We just don't know how to say thanks, guys, for your continued listenership here. The Rosé Hour podcast couldn't be possible without our amazing sound engineer, Ty Westbrook, bartender Ben, our amazing guest, even dope freshness, bottles of rosé every day, all day. Yay! And for a moment, I want to pause and just say a moment of prayer for everyone who and what we're going through right now in the country. It's a lot, y'all. And we just need to just come together, pray, you know, give each other time, socially distance from each other. But just make sure that we are there for each other when we need it, because life is short. And this is definitely showing us a time for us to really, really be there for those who we love. With that said, if you want to reach out to the Rosé Podcast, Rosé Hour Podcast, that is, hit us up at Renee at theroséhourpodcast.com. Additionally, check us out on social media. We're at the Rosé Hour Podcast. And remember, sip, sip, hooray until next week.